Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here today in a very quiet Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and today I'm joined by Ben Myers. Ben is a film director, producer, executive producer and the managing director at MWS Media Limited, a video production agency in Thatcham, Berkshire. Uh, Ben, welcome. Great to have you with us on the programme today. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. Now, Ben, first and foremost, this podcast is all about the uh, the topic of leadership and effective leadership at that. Um, but what does that word leader actually mean to you? So I think because of the nature of what we do, um, I spend a lot of time either as a director or a producer on a, on a film or video set. Uh, and I started out my career in theatre as a theatre director. And the first thing I learned as a director, who is often, that, that is obviously a senior leadership role in, in the creative arts, is that leadership, more than anything, is about removing obstacles from people's paths, helping them to get out of their own way, if you will. Um, so as a director, I, I don't consider it my primary task to tell an actor what to say or to tell people where to stand. Uh, I consider them to be talented people who are going to give me a great performance. So what I do is I try and remove obstacles from that performance so they can give the best version of themselves. And I think in business, I found empowering um, crew and staff uh, in a similar way has worked really well. Absolutely. Um, as a business leader, especially, it's not just about essentially leading from the top and leading by example, but it's also about enabling those around you to have a little bit of independence and essentially take on their own form of leadership and be self-motivated, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, one of the main things as a leader is to, um, is to be okay with your own weaknesses. Because I think that encourages people under you to um, to open up and ask questions and be honest about where they're they're struggling. Um, because if they don't feel that the that the forum um, is available to them to say I I don't know this, then they're not going to ask and they're going to continue doing something to a lesser standard. Um, one of the main things I I believe in is that leadership, uh, true leadership, is honesty. Um, I think many people in the public eye when we hit a crisis like this, we often see that we think maybe leadership has been found wanting in some areas. But it's because a lot of people who are in the public eye face so much criticism in a, in a world of social media. Um, I, I can't imagine being a politician at this time um, where everything you do is so scrutinized and you're constantly under the cosh. Um, I think people are beaten down by that criticism. They start to put shields up. Whereas uh, as people, we're neurobiologically designed to, to connect with each other. And the more you put shields up, the less you connect, the less you come across as open and honest. Um, and the less people will believe what you're saying, even if it's even if it's really important advice. So I think leadership is honesty. And I think honesty means making yourself vulnerable, which is very hard to do, particularly if you're in the public eye and you, you, you receive this barrage of criticism just for for simple things that you do, because being honest sometimes means being wrong or upsetting people because you think you know better. Uh, it's a very hard thing to do, but I think it's hugely important. I'm, I'm the biggest thing I want in our leaders um, of the country, of industry, is honesty. Absolutely. And um, keeping that in mind that the leaders um, of the world, especially the likes of Boris Johnson, have come under a great deal of criticism due to their responses to the uh, the outbreak. Um, do you think that leadership is as celebrated as much as it should be in this country, given that leaders are very much, those in the public eye anyway, there to be shot at? No, I think we, we have a, a culture of tearing leaders down. 
we, we think of leadership as, as hugely important. When you look at, um, we're a country that are very passionate about our sports, for example. Um, we love to get an England cricket captain or an England football captain. Um, and we love to, we want to revere them. But at the same time, there seems to be this underlying desire to pin everything on them and then tear them down. So we see leadership um, in, a, in a sort of a slightly paradoxical way. It's something to aspire to, but I think we're afraid of it as well. Um, and that's a real shame because we should be empowering our leaders too. We should be empowering the leaders of tomorrow by trying to make them feel that the, the environment, whatever that environment is, uh, is one that's conducive to allowing them to, to give of their best as well. No, it, it isn't, frankly, as, as, uh, in answer to your question, it's not celebrated enough. Absolutely. And leaders, whenever they assume their roles, they're not going to be getting every single decision, especially fundamental decisions, right, are they? I mean, it's still very much a learning process. You don't have a ready-made leader who's going to get everything right going into a role, do you? Absolutely not. No, um, 100% no. And um, while I'm, I don't mind leadership coming from anywhere, I don't mind if it's a young person who's developed amazing leadership skills. Um, one thing I will say is that Learning from your mistakes, the reason we talk about that, the reason it's such a such a common phrase, it's hugely important. Um, I've, I'm, I'm a person like many people who end up in leadership roles in their lives and careers who's always gravitated towards being a leader, possibly because I really wanted to do that. But wanting to be a leader is absolutely, doesn't at all qualify you to be one. And I'm now, I'm now in my early 40s, and I'd say I'm just really starting to feel more comfortable in terms of understanding what it means to be a leader. I think I've probably not been a particularly brilliant man manager in the past. Um, uh, and I think that's something that hopefully is improving because I've become more cognizant of uh, my where my abilities are strong and where they're not so strong. Um, but I think that's something you learn over time. Um, and I think you've got to be honest with yourself as much as other people and learn from your mistakes. And I'm very much no longer afraid of saying, I don't know something. That's um, really positive. And based upon that experience that you've accumulated over that amount of time as well, what sort of advice would you give to somebody who was about to start their first day in a leadership role, Ben? I think believe in yourself, but be be honest with people. Don't put up barriers. If you can at all avoid it, the easiest thing in the world to be is yourself. The minute you start adding layers of artifice to that, thinking that you need to put on a front in front of people, um, you make it harder for yourself because one day that front might slip. Now, I understand the desire to put up a front because it's, it protects you. But if you can be honest and you can allow yourself to be vulnerable uh, and you, you give the best you can, I think people respond to that. We, we tend to treat people, the idea of people as a group. We'll treat a person as a very intelligent, motivated individual. But as soon as it's people, we tend to think of them as dumb we tend to treat a group of people as a, a sort of a herd mentality. And they're not. People, if we trust them, they'll, they'll respond in kind. I would agree with that. It's uh, very much about um, the people around you as much as um, the leader themselves, isn't it? It's not just a one man or one woman show, leading um, a business especially. It's all about the people around you and having that trust and instilling that culture of trust and allowing those people to be able to be self-motivated and sort of take responsibility for themselves as well. I think that's of huge importance. Um, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think leadership is teamwork. Um, and when you look at, yes, for example, Boris Johnson is the leader of the government. He also, it's important about the team he has around him during a crisis like this. I think it's important for all world leaders at the moment uh, and relying on medical advice, assembling the right team in a crisis. I think for all leaders, 
trying to be uh, a one man or woman band is a mistake. I think you should lean on people who are who are talented in different areas. Absolutely, yeah. The people that you surround yourself with as a leader is, um, of course, of uh, huge importance. Um, if we go back to your your own sort of style of leadership, Ben, uh, just for a moment, um, what would you say are the influences behind that? Um, are there any sort of individuals that stand out? Any experiences that have maybe influenced your leadership style over the years? Yeah, mine are probably rather sad though. Um, things like growing up, I um, I watched a lot of um, sports, and I was a huge fan uh, in my very formative years of Brian Robson, the England football captain. Uh, I was a very big fan of Michael Atherton, and my favourite sporting leader is probably Michael Vaughan. Now, obviously, he and his team were responsible for some great sporting memories for me during the Ashes in 2005. Not least because I grew up; some of my formative years were spent living in Australia, so. Uh, the the the, um, the the struggle with our antipathy and friends has a particular meaning for me. Mm. Uh, so I, I had a lot of respect for them as leaders. Um, in terms of historically speaking, uh, I'm a I'm a, a bit of a, a geek, a bit of a nerd, uh, and I, I I enjoy the study of history. Um, people like Martin Luther King Jr. Um, uh, are people that I think. When you look at what they did, they were incredibly open, honest, and vulnerable in terms of, you can look at their personal lives, you can see the mistakes and things that people make, everybody is human. But in terms of achieving the goals, uh, in terms of human right activism, he put himself out there to the extent that the people who disagreed with him, eventually it cost him his life. Um, I'm in no way somebody who would ever be as brave and selfless as that, but I think there's no harm in aspiring to be better and using people who've shown examples of enormous selflessness, another great leadership trait, um, to, to inspire Absolutely. And what do you think that the likes of uh, Martin Luther King would say to people now, especially with the whole COVID-19 crisis going on? I think that's going to need to come together. I think great leaders are great at bringing people together and helping us to forget differences. And remember that there is so much more it's always been true and it will always be true. There is so much more that unites us than divides us. It's a common phrase that we forget so easily. And then if we can just try and remember that if we stick together as, as communities, as households, if we try and support the most vulnerable in society, we will get through this. We've got through that, you know, look at history. There's been the most awful crises in human history. We've always come out the other side of them. So, you know, no defeatism. Um, there's going to be really tough times at the moment in in business, sure, and business affects lives, so there's a knock-on effect there. But also in people's personal lives, um, and I think coming together as as a communities and as a nation and as a as a planet, as a species, is hugely important. It is absolutely, and hopefully that once we do get to the other side of this crisis, we can maintain that sense of unity that appears to be manifesting itself at the uh, the moment. Um, I am conscious, Ben, of running out of time, but before we do wrap things up, um, do you give me an idea of what you imagine the next year is going to hold for yourself, for MWS, and what you hope to achieve in that time, particularly beyond the COVID-19 outbreak as well? Yeah, sure. So as a, as a small business, um, we... We're lucky. We get to be a little bit um, responsive in cases like this, and we can be creative and, and, and agile. So we've tried to take what we do and, and work it remotely. So I'm working from home in my, my home office. Um, and, for example, as a director, I've spent a lot of time working with presenters and actors. So I've created a training course um, for training people to present digitally, to, tra- to present virtually. Um, it's something that, I think it's really important now, but I think, as you just said, it will be hugely important 
moving forwards. The world is going to change because of this. We don't quite know how yet, but I think people are going to to think about the way that they live their lives in a fundamental way, and businesses will will be doing the same thing. So I think living in a virtual world is something I you know I didn't grow up with this virtual technology. It's something I've learned. Um, younger people entering the workforce now are going to be much much better at it. But we all need to be able to do these things. So as a small business, we're trying to be agile. We're looking at the chain. We're trying to, as best we can, predict how what we do can add value to businesses in what is going to be a very changed world moving forwards. Um, and it's, it is scary and it is difficult. I saw a stat in the papers today saying 62% of biz, small businesses or businesses in the UK, um, Chamber of Commerce registered businesses, think they've only got three months of cash reserves. Those kind of things, they are scary. But also, the world is changing and we're changing the opportunity and we have to be brave. Um, so we're doing it in our very small way at the moment, but we're going to look to extend that and explore the opportunities uh, and try and add value and, and keep making money to keep our business going so that we can see where we are on the other side of this thing. Absolutely. And let's hope that business can seize on the opportunities that this will present and really take that in their stride as well when we start to see that. trajectory. Um, I have to say, Ben, it's been an absolute pleasure and really insightful having you on the uh, the program today. And I also think it would be fantastic to perhaps have you back on in a few months time just to look at all of this retrospectively and also see how those hopes have been borne out. And thank you so much for uh, coming on uh, to the program today. Thanks, Scott. It was a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, yeah, I hope to speak to you again. Likewise. Um, For those who haven't heard it, we now hand over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England cricket legend Sir Andrew Strauss. And I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Sir Andrew. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White. And today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, and you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dreskothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at, the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And... Um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to completely different 
world almost. I'd been I was a Middlesex player. I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later, I've scored a Test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out, you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first Test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So. And then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, But I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 years of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsex bef- you know, a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of, because I, th- I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international cricket. And in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know... uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and and, and you've got (laughs) other places to be, so (laughs) we can't do that, but... I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was Mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, I think it was the final day of the series, and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, (laughs) like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it's it just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the 
the highlight was number one drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes, but also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, though, because there's, there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived as well a done. celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know. You see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that you know that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, as you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that you know <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over so th there was that sort of realization this is going to be a tough thing to do um and you're gonna have to dig pretty deep but I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying okay if I'm going to do this job what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. It you lets. know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are 
slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Okay. Yes. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they they'll know your heart's in the right place and they uh they'll feel comforted there'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough if they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself um it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be it doesn't matter you know how gregarious and and how um impressive you might be as a person they will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly um now in 2015 obviously you were appointed as director of cricket at the ecb uh you took some pretty uh major steps early on um you brought in trevor bayliss as coach was what was brought in um you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket now in the abstract what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night and it never was um and so i definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 world cup i thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure um and i knew in order to do that we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket quite a radical shift from what we, we what we were coming from yeah but mm. the rest of the game had moved on yeah. and the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move. With, in fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the times. <laughs> so, you know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan, who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around 
what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off. And uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become... Avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be... The World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, Andrew, to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. So after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death mm. and so in order to do that we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well it should help 
the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we... I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We're, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health, and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's, it's the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year, so if you could tell us about some of those, that would be... Yeah, so the... Uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is... Uh, yeah. A very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there. I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day. What an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing, re uh, wearing red. So it w w what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> anyway, no, I think. But um, no, it, absolutely. Yeah. No, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world 
we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and we'll be moving towards the IPL. And those are you know, those are two enormous events out there and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm gonna have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I i I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well surely it's gonna be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.